You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 24. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. This episode is sponsored by Sacred Blossom Living Herbal Teas. They're hand-grown on a farm in Wisconsin. I'm not sure about you, but one of my favorite ways to relax at the end of a long day of chasing a toddler around is to sit down on the couch with a nice cup of hot tea. Sacred Blossom has three delicious flavors of tea, tiger, angel, and dream. Tiger provides energy that's different from caffeine that supports an energy that is grounded and focused, and angel has a gentle, minty, floral, and sweet flavor that's also good hot or iced. Finally, Dream is the most relaxing tea out of the three. It's perfect to drink before bed and helps calm yourself down and ease anxiety. Check out Sacred Blossom Tea at sacredblossomfarm.com. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Mother Good Podcast. I hope that all of you are holding up during this uncertain time. I pulled all of our listeners on Instagram to see if you all are interested in us talking about the coronavirus on this podcast because I wasn't sure if you all wanted to hear more about it or not hear about it um, because I know it's everywhere in the news and all of you said you wanted us to talk about it. So in response to that, I did get an infectious disease specialist as a guest on the show to chat a little bit about the coronavirus. You can learn more about it. I'm also going to have a couple more episodes during this time, such as how to manage anxiety during an epidemic and also some fun activities that you can do at home with your children, since that's what a lot of us or all of us rather are going to be doing during this time. I also wanted to briefly mention why I think it's important to discuss the coronavirus and precautions to take for it. I know that right now, whenever some people discuss the coronavirus, that a common response is, well, don't panic. But I just wanted to get into the definition of what panic is, just to put some clarification on it, and also just to serve as a basis to show that it's really important to still get the information out there, and that's not necessarily causing panic. So dictionary.com defines panic as sudden, uncontrollable fear or anxiety, often causing wildly unthinking behavior. So I just wanted to clarify that when people are sharing precautions that should be taken, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are panicking. In fact, only a person herself can actually determine if she's giving that information from a state of panic, since that's very subjective and internal, and only that individual would be able to know if they're giving that information from a place of fear or anxiety. On the other hand, it's really important that we do take precautions during this time, which is completely different from panicking. You know, precautions are completely different from panic. In fact, that they're defined as a measure taken in advance to prevent something dangerous, unpleasant, or inconvenient from happening. So that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this episode. I'm not trying to cause any panic. I definitely would not want that. However, at the same time that this virus is dangerous and that measures need to be taken in order to prevent it. So from that aspect, it's really important. So I'm so excited for you to hear my chat with Dr. Farah, who is an infectious disease specialist in the UK. She gives some very useful information on the coronavirus, what it is, what symptoms are, what precautions you can take to protect your family, and also to give some hope and put things in perspective too, which I really like that part of our conversation. 
In this episode, one thing is already outdated, even though I recorded this episode yesterday, and that's the thing with the coronavirus, that everything changes daily. And Dr. Farah wanted me to share this with you for any UK listeners, that in this episode, she stated that pregnant women were considered in the higher risk group. However, as of today, which is March 16th, the UK government did just place pregnant women in that higher risk category. As for our American listeners, the American College of Gynecology does consider pregnant women at-risk group for the coronavirus. I'm going to read an excerpt directly from the American College of Gynecology's practice advisory on their website, and I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read more about it. So they said that pregnant women are known to be at a greater risk of severe morbidity and mortality from other respiratory infections such as influenza and SARS. As such, pregnant women should be considered an at-risk population for this coronavirus. And unfortunately, they go on to say that adverse infant outcomes such as preterm birth have been reported among infants born to mothers positive for the coronavirus during pregnancy. But they go on to say that the information is based on limited data and it's not clear that the outcomes were related to the maternal infection. The CDC in the United States also says that they don't have enough information at this time to actually say whether or not the CDC also says that they don't have enough information at this time to make a determination about the severity of the coronavirus in pregnant women. So if you are pregnant and listening to this episode, you might want to discuss with your doctor what your risks are and what your doctor thinks that the risks are. If they're not familiar with this recent standard that was just issued by the American College of Gynecology, you might want to inform them of that because I know that most doctors are just so busy in the hospital right now that they might not have time to keep up to date on all of these advisories that are coming out. Also from an employer-employee aspect, this isn't legal advice, this is just information that keep in mind that pregnant women do have certain rights under disability laws and under pregnancy discrimination and disability laws. So you might want to consider getting a doctor's note or some sort of accommodation if your job puts you at a higher risk, if you qualify and your employer qualifies as well. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Farah, and I'm going to have a few other episodes related to this coronavirus, such as fun activities that you can do at home with your kids while everyone is quarantined and also how to manage anxiety during this time. And if you have any other topics regarding this whole outbreak that you would like us to cover, just feel free to shoot us a DM on our Instagram page, MotherGoodCo, or an email at MotherGoodCo at gmail.com. So without further ado, here is my amazing conversation with Dr. Farah. Dr. Farah, welcome so much to our show. We really appreciate it. I know that we've been getting so many questions from all of our mom followers who are super concerned about this coronavirus. So could you just explain to our audience uh, a little bit about yourself? Tell us who you are, your education, and your career. Yeah. Hi. Thanks very much for having me. So my name is Farah. I'm a medical doctor in the UK. Um, I graduated uh, nine, ten years ago. I've done a lot of A&E, a bit of anesthetics and ITU, and I'm choosing to specialize in infectious diseases and microbiology. So at the moment, I'm actually doing some research work, so I'm not working all that much clinically, uh, but that obviously might change as, as things progress. A lot of our listeners um, have been asking, as I mentioned, so many questions about what exactly the coronavirus is and how it could potentially impact them. So maybe could you just start off with just, I'm sure everyone knows by now what it is, that it's a bad virus, but maybe yeah. just on an infectious disease level, what exactly it is. 
Yeah, so I mean, it is it is a virus, uh, coronavirus. There are seven in total, which humans can spread to other humans. Um, so four of them kind of give symptoms like the common cold. So a bit of a sniffle, you might not feel great for a few days, and eventually they sort of pass off. And then there are three, including this new one, this uh, COVID nineteen virus, that uh, cause more severe illness. So one of them is called the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, which is uh, or MERS CoV, um, and that one has a very severe uh, mortality rate of around forty percent. And then there's the SARS virus that um, happened when was that? What two thousand and nine? No earlier wasn't it it was around 2002 2003 um and that one had about a 10 percent mortality rate so um this new covid19 virus or sars-cov2 to give it its virological name uh is not as bad as those two severe coronaviruses but it is another form of coronavirus that we know can cause severe illness and we think at the moment that the number of people who die versus the number of people who actually get infected with it is around 2%. Got it. And why were the other viruses worse? I guess because I've been reading a little bit about in terms of who is infectious and at what point, and maybe you can get into this a little bit more in detail. And, um, you know, I'm not a doctor or scientist, I'm a lawyer. So everything I say is not coming with the med- right medical terminology. So forgive me if I uh, misstate anything. So I, basically what I've heard is that, you know, MERS and SARS, even though they had, you know, higher fatality rates that people who were infected got sick almost immediately after getting the virus versus this coronavirus, you could be contagious for up to two weeks before you ever have symptoms and then infecting a bunch of people. And that kind of makes it a little bit more dangerous, but not not deadlier in terms of like the case mortality rate, but just more dangerous is that accurate yeah more more spready i suppose so i think usually the way i kind of think about these things into so so infectious diseases it's almost like a constant biological warfare so it's always us against whatever pathogen is trying to infect a human being whether that's bacterial or viral or or parasitic or whatever so so often bugs will try and find a way of overcoming things, but what they don't want to do on the whole is kill off their host. So generally, and this isn't 100%, but generally you tend to find that, that bugs that spread more easily and more quickly tend not to be as severe in terms of killing off the host, so the humans in this case. Um, so I think the thing with MERS and SARS is that um, you didn't get that sort of level of asymptomatic transmission, which I think is what you're talking about, where there's a period of being infective, but you don't actually show any symptoms. Whereas this, there's new data coming out that we think that most people start to show symptoms about six days after they've actually been infected. And during that period of time where they're asymptomatic, there is a potential that they might also be able to spread that virus to somebody else without knowing that they've got it. But actually, in terms of the data that we have, it's still really difficult because as this has spread throughout the world, people, and you'll see the UK are now doing this, we go quite quickly because of resource limitations, and that includes the number of people who are available to do the testing we stop testing just the general widespread community and we start testing the people who come in with severe symptoms to prove that they are positive and then they need to be isolated or treated slightly differently. So in the end, you kind of get the skew of the data. So what you tend to pick up 
is all of the people who are symptomatic, whereas you don't necessarily pick up all of the ones in the community who are asymptomatic but still potentially spreading. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I think I read something similar to that, that South Korea, I guess they're testing about 20,000 people a day. Yeah. And they only have yes, 0.7% because they're catching exactly. the asymptomatic people. Exactly. And that's the thing. So if you compare like Italy with South Korea, which is what I did in one of my recent videos, you know, the numbers in Italy look quite terrifying, but unfortunately... I think there are a number of reasons for that, but the likelihood is that actually they just didn't have baseline community testing to compare against. So actually the number of people who are infected is far higher than we think within Italy, and they just haven't managed to prove that as such. Whereas in South Korea, they were on it, like they were testing absolutely everyone, and therefore their numbers show that, you know, you've got a less than 1% mortality rate. And that's just because it's like, you know, if you have 10 people in hospital who present with disease X and four of them die from disease X, then you think, oh God, that's a 40% death rate from disease X. But then actually, if you widen that pool of people and you have 10 people in the community who are asymptomatic, but also have disease X, then suddenly you have a number of four people who've died out of a total of 20 people. And so you've only got a 20% mortality. So it's kind of, it's difficult because as things, like I say, as things have spread, we've we've um, started to test the more symptomatic people and focus less on the asymptomatic ones, which then makes numbers look a bit, well, a lot scarier in some cases than they actually probably are. Right, exactly. So how is this transmitted? I know that initially everyone was just saying, wash your hands. I know that that's still important um, and cover your cough, sanitize, stuff like that. But then I also saw recently someone saying that it's a lot more infectious or high, more transmittable than the regular flu and that it stays in the air for up to three hours after someone's been in a location. So is this yeah, something so I haven't, about or is this true? I haven't read that paper myself yet, but I have heard talk of it. Um, our main understanding um, is that actually it tends to be droplet spread. So, and if somebody coughs and then it's going to get in the air and then drop quite quickly, as opposed to where it hangs about in the air quite so much. I think at the moment we're still trying to learn about it. So I can't really answer that question specifically because I haven't read the paper to, to like say yes or no about it. So I don't want to mislead you, but my understanding is that actually that's less likely to be the case. I mean, within the UK now for suspected patients with COVID-19, um, we're wearing like less secure masks than the ones that we know have definitely got it. And part of the reason for that is because we're trying to make sure that we use them when we know somebody has it and we use them appropriately. And we don't feel the need to do that at a slightly earlier stage in our testing because it's unlikely that we're going to get these really fine particle spreads that you get with aerosol transmission. It's more likely that it's big droplets that are more of a problem. What would you say to anyone who thinks that this is just a bad flu? Do you think it's just a bad flu? And do you think it's just hype? Or do you think that this is something that we should be concerned in or concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff like all over the internet and there's like three groups of people. You've got the people who quite early on in this seem to think that we doctors and scientists were just creating a hoo-ha about nothing and getting all excited and had all these conspiracy theories. And then you've got other people who are like, oh my God, it's the worst thing ever. 
And then you've got the people in the middle who are quite sensible and want to know more, which is quite right. I think there is definitely, unfortunately, reason to be alarmed. The reason for that is less so much how deathly it is as how much it can impact on healthcare systems. Um, And therefore, we're asking, especially in the UK at the moment, part of our guidance now is that we're asking people to take some of that responsibility on themselves and to self-isolate if they have any symptoms, however mild, and if they become unwell, to then contact healthcare and then we can take it from there. So, and, and that's partly so that we can try and limit some of the spread of the illness because you're more likely to spread when you have the symptoms, obviously, because you can cough it out and you can, you know, spread it more easily than if you're asymptomatic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is reason to be alarmed. But I think there is also a lot of good that we see at the same time. So like you say, in South Korea, their death rate is not as high. And that's simply because they're testing more people. And I think ultimately we will likely find that actually the um, death rate probably is something around 1%. So I think follow guidance, you know, make sure you're washing your hands, make sure that you're not touching your face with dirty hands um use a hand sanitizer if you can um just be sensible and follow your local guidance and if you do become unwell then just make sure that you follow the guidance for that so contact your healthcare providers as per whatever guidance you are in whichever country i'm so glad you brought up the different you know the spectrum of people who are concerned the the people who are over concerned or under concerned because i think that that's really important to bring that up since I, it seems like whenever I've been trying to warn some of my friends who are not concerned at all about it, just trying to get them a little bit more yeah. concerned about it, they a lot of them think, well, you're causing panic, you know, just for in, informing them about it. But I think that there's a difference between panic and taking precautions. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's a really difficult line to tread and that's what we're seeing like the world over with all of the leaders. It's a really hard thing to be like, look, take us seriously, but please don't panic. Stop panic buying stuff because you're not helping anybody. You know, at some point it might be that the you know, the people who are elderly or more vulnerable are going to be the people who are more likely to be recommended to to self-isolate first. Um, and if you've taken all of their, you know, toilet rolls or whatever, you're just making their life difficult. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's getting the balance, guys. Right. So yeah. I try and spread all the positive stuff, but I try and point out that, yes, this is something that has the potential to overwhelm healthcare systems. And this has something that has the potential to cause, unfortunately, deaths of people that we were hoping would live much longer. Right. So it is something to be serious about, but it's, I think, at the same time, actually, overall, I think we'll find that it's not as serious as it sounds, if that makes sense. So who are the at-risk groups? I know that you mentioned that to follow the guidance of your local government, and it's funny, it just as you said that I saw it flash through in my news updates that I guess the governor of California, which is where I'm at, that basically is telling everyone over the age 65 and older now to self-isolate or if you have a chronic condition and to stay at home and he's uh, closing all bars and nightclubs, which is shocking. I just heard too in Los Angeles, they're shutting down all dine-in restaurants. 
So who are the at-risk groups, um, you know, for anyone listening? This episode is sponsored by Fruit of the Bean. Fruit of the Bean delivers freshly roasted coffee directly to your doorstep, which is something all of us moms need. What's really special about their coffee is that it's not roasted until after it's ordered, so you really get that fresh taste with each cup of coffee. The company is also amazing because they love giving back by helping orphans and those affected by human trafficking, which is a really big passion of ours. And if you use the code MOTHERGOOD at checkout, you can receive a 25% discount. So if you're a tired mom and you want to get some fresh coffee delivered straight to your door, just check out Fruit of the Bean. You can find them at fruitofthebean.com. And don't forget to use the promo code MOTHERGOOD for a very generous 25% off. So um, we've got, there's like a a, a really good paper that came up uh, from China, which I think it had 77,000 cases, 44,000 of which were definite confirmed cases. And the other 30 odd thousand were probably suspected cases, but because they'd run out of resource, I think they hadn't necessarily tested them all or because of the timing of when they had those cases. And so from that data, we were able to get a bit more information because all of this is obviously still a learning process. Um, some of that data has been really beautifully presented by uh, somebody on Instagram at info is beautiful. I think they were called. Um, and that's basically that paper that they have, um, they have put into these amazing graphics to show you. So the at risk groups from what we can tell tend to be, unfortunately people who are in the more older age groups and a lot of people are asking, well, what, what age group is, is that exactly? And and I think it's difficult to tell. I think once you at least get over the age of 70, then that risk of death is higher, unfortunately, or the risk of severe illness is higher as well. Um, generally, it seems as well that people who have heart problems are more at risk. People with diabetes are more at risk. Uh, people with high blood pressure. Um, people with uh, chronic lung problems and they're probably some of that might be skewed by the fact that actually within the Chinese population there are very high smoking rates so you are more likely to see people with, with lung disease and smoking populations um, and then people with immune issues or for whatever reason are on immunosuppressive therapy so people who have cancer and on chemotherapy or people who have rheumatoid arthritis for example and they take drugs that suppress their immune system some of that is because we know that generally those are the sorts of people who are likely to get any infection we also know that with influenza um, people there is an association between having heart problems and having influenza And this seems to be the case with the COVID-19 virus as well. I have to say, and it's important to say, I think, because you asked me earlier and I forgot to mention, COVID-19 virus or the coronavirus, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is a different virus to the influenza virus. So there are going to be differences between the two. I think in terms of how the symptoms are, there are similarities, and that's the easiest thing for people to understand. But it does at the moment seem to be 10 to 20% worse in terms of its death rates than this normal circulating flu that we see. And we vaccinate for that one. 
say. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say like with the flu, you have vaccines and some yeah. sort of immunity built up. And for the coronavirus, exactly. there's we no don't. real immunity. It's a new yeah. thing, you know, and, and we don't even know all of the immune immune stuff around it. I mean, one of the things I wonder and don't know is, you know, we know that there are four circulating viruses that a lot of people get uh, that are coronaviruses. Is there any overlap between how severe mm-hmm. or how non-severe your symptoms are if you've had one of those ones recently or with right and are those the asymptomatic know. people who never show symptoms or yeah exactly so you know there's a lot of stuff that we're still learning and we don't know but at the moment it seems to have uh, a predilection for people who have heart problems and who are in the older age groups so those seem to be the higher risk groups in children actually there's barely any disease particularly in that particular study I think they had a 0 to 9 age group um, and a 10 to 19 age group. And in that, those two age groups made about 2% of the total number of cases of, that were confirmed positives. And there were no deaths in the 0 to 9 age group. Now, that's, yeah, that's not necessarily... Really yeah, it's not necessarily 100% true that there'll be absolutely no deaths, obviously, between, unfortunately, 0 to 9-year-old child, children. Right. But I think the younger you are, the, it seems so far that, that the better your chances of having non-severe disease. Um, and children seem to be the ones that they have picked up, seem to have very mild disease as well. Um, so, yeah, it is it is nice news at least, I guess. <laughs> right, right. What about uh, pregnant women? Because I know that we have a lot of, well, all of our listeners are moms, but there are oh. a lot of pregnant women who listen. And I know I know that there isn't any data necessarily to show either way, at least that's what the CDC guidelines said. But I did see, at least with the American College of Gynecology, that they consider pregnant women at risk. Uh, what What's your take on that? Should pregnant women be taking precautions? Yeah. So, I mean, the data that I've got or the, the guidance that I have isn't the American stuff, obviously, because <laughs> I'm over here in the UK, but it's the, the Royal College of Obsingaini. I mean, generally, we think of, of pregnant women as being at slightly higher risk of having most things because, as you well know, that their risk of infection tends to be higher generally. Actually, it's from what we can see from the data that we have Pregnant women don't seem to be at more risk of severe disease with COVID-19 virus, um, which is a good thing, I guess. Um, There's actually, there's a few sort of case reports that have been done in Chinese populations where they haven't shown any transmission between mum and baby. There is one, I think, possible case somewhere, but I don't know the details of that and nobody's 100% sure. Yeah, I think I just saw it in London that there was a Yeah, but then the question is, did that newborn get it because mum was positive and mum, like, kissed, hugged, coughed over baby? Or did they get it because the, the virus was transmitted through the blood or through the placenta into the baby? As far as we can tell from, from the data right. that we have, when they've swabbed the, um, I think there's, it says here, there's a case series published by Chen and co who tested amniotic fluid, the cord blood, uh, throat swabs from babies, neonates, and breast milk samples from mothers they knew were infected. And all of those samples they tested were tested as negative. So that's quite reassuring. I think. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, at, at the moment, 
they're they're basically saying that we're hoping that obviously because mums tend to be in a younger age group that hopefully that protective element of being younger is actually standing true even for pregnant mothers um but again we still don't have masses of data on this at the moment so it's just doing the sensible things if you do get symptoms stay at home and follow your guidance according to whatever your isolation policy is in your country if you have an appointment to go to and you've got a sniffle or something, you might be better off ringing in and checking with them whether you should go into the department at a time like this because you don't want to obviously risk other people as well. And if you become unwell, if you're at home and self-isolating, then again, contact your medical services and go from there. But keep your hands clean, keep your hands away from your face if they're dirty um, and just being sensible like everybody else, I think. Can children spread it if they're not exhibiting any symptoms? So for our moms listening and they have children who might have it, should they keep their kids away from their grandparents or people who are at a higher risk in a higher risk group? It's really difficult. So over here at the moment, we're not, uh, we're not shutting the schools. Now I'm not a public health expert and actually as it happens, our chief medical officer in the UK is one. Um, and there are a lot of people asking all sorts of questions about whether what we're doing at the moment in the UK is right or wrong compared with other countries, etc. I think part of the reason that they haven't closed schools at the moment is probably because it then depletes the possible workforce who are going to be helpful uh, when things really kick off, if you see what I mean. Um, you don't. So it's difficult from what. What I say is, and I mean this with the greatest of respect to children that I love. Um, but uh, kids are vermin, (laughs) so (laughs) they will spread anything they possibly can. Um, I suspect that if you have, and I don't know for sure, but it's the same with any asymptomatic cases, if you have the virus and you say, as children want to do, pick your nose and then like spread it on somebody else, then yes, there's a risk that you have just transmitted the virus to somebody else. Um, I think if you have a child and you have elderly or frail grandparents, if that child is sniffly, I would keep them away and just play it safe. I mean, it depends on what your guidance is. Our guidance extends to children. So if you have any symptoms then you stay at home for seven days from the start of your symptoms, and that includes children. So, yeah. Can you explain to the difference between containment and mitigation? I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, we can't contain this. So might as well like not take any precautions and whatever happens, happens. But I know that you mentioned that we don't want our healthcare systems to be overwhelmed. So can you just explain a little bit? I know people have been talking about flattening the curve and stuff like that. Maybe just quickly explain what that means and why it's important to follow whatever your government recommends, the precautions, and and really take those seriously? Yeah, so um, in the UK, we've got four phases. So there's containment, delay, mitigation. There's a research phase which goes alongside the other three the whole way through. In other words, people are trying to find uh, potential cures, if you like, or vaccines for, for the illness, anything supportive for making people better. So the containment phase was, I mean, I'm talking about this from a UK perspective, but for the containment phase, we were trying to swab anybody who might possibly be positive, and then we were trying to isolate them away from the rest of the community. So for a while that, you know, when it first kicked off, it was anybody who travelled back from the Hubei province, they would be um, people that we would want to test, particularly if they were symptomatic, and then isolate until they were better. Um 
And that was to try and stop the spread of the virus. And it soon became clear that no matter how many countries we added to that list, eventually it was sneaking in. And I think the biggest or most overwhelming thing has been since Italy found that it had so many cases in, in such a short space of time, by which point it was probably already spreading throughout the UK population. So then we've moved more recently into the delay phase. So the delay phase is to try and do that flattening the curve thing. So if you have a load of people who suddenly get very unwell and all present to hospital, then you are more likely to then overwhelm your healthcare service. And what you get is this peak, which I've realised I'm moving my hands and you can't see me, <laughs> but you get <laughs> essentially... I'm visualising it. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a rocket-shaped peak in the number of cases that, that present. And that's obviously dangerous in terms of making sure that there are enough beds in hospitals for people who need them, that, that healthcare staff are able to keep working without getting burnt out, that we can keep up with the demand. So instead, there's this flattening the curve idea, which is essentially the delay phase, where what you're trying to do instead is say, OK, we know it's in the population now. What can we do to mean that that spread slows down? And that's where the social distancing stuff comes in. So that's why people start to talk about if you're elderly and frail, you stay at home to diminish your risk of being sicker. But if you are well and you can work from home, then maybe that's a good idea um, just to try and reduce those number of cases who are going to present to a hospital. What it does mean is if you've got a big peak that's quick, then it's quick and it's kind of over and done with. But probably at much higher risk of more deaths whereas if you have right, that's kind of what's happening in italy right yeah yeah i mean it's so difficult isn't it because i feel really sorry for italy and i don't think we'll know for sure exactly what happened there for years to come i mean we're going to be talking about this for probably the rest of our lives really um uh, but yeah essentially i think they didn't for whatever reason whether it's a a population dynamic thing or whether it's that they didn't catch up with themselves to start with for whatever reason yes they they seem to be at a point where they're having a, a massive upshot of cases and they're not quite able to keep up with them and they're making really tricky decisions so that's what we're trying to avoid we're trying to make sure that there's kind of enough circulating that we can keep on top of things and we can monitor it but without having that overwhelming peak so that you get a longer spread of infectious cases, but it's over a longer period of time without that sharp spike, and therefore your healthcare service can can cope with it. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard, but in case that they haven't, that in Italy, that basically they're having to choose who to put on a ventilator. I think I read from uh, some Italian ER doctor that one example was they had two 40-year-olds who needed a ventilator and they only have so many, so they're trying to choose whether or not to put a 40-year-old who is perfectly healthy without kids on it or a 40-year-old with two kids on it. And it's like, that's those aren't the types of decisions as a doctor that you want to have to be making in this kind of outbreak. So um, so I guess, is there any um, in closing? No. I, I yeah, definitely. So, so in closing, is there, I guess, any, because I don't want to be so <laughs> on the other side of like causing panic, is there any hopeful outlook on this that our listeners can have and some takeaways from it to give them some hope amidst all this chaos? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the big thing to take away is that even though it sounds or looks scary, part of that is because people are trying to do the right thing here. So your governments are trying to keep up with 
the spread of an infection that is new and some of that is going to look scary by the nature of it being something that we haven't dealt with before. But actually the majority of cases are really, really mild. So if this has a 2% death rate, then 98% of people will be completely fine. Do you see what I mean? Um, if you look at South Korea, I think they're kind of proving that theory as well, that actually most people are fine with it. And, you know, actually the death rate is quite small. It's just a case of keeping on top of things um, and keeping, you know, keeping up with your relevant advice. I think it's going to be a trying time. It's going to be tiring for everybody. I'm not going to lie. I think, you know, and seeing what's going on in Italy is what, I think makes things even more scary because, you know, it isn't nice to think of those sorts of things going on um, or people having to make those sorts of decisions. So I think just follow your advice, like listen to what the the healthcare teams are saying, self-isolate if you can, if you get any symptoms and know that actually, you know, on the whole, everybody will be fine. You know, the majority of uh, cases are mild and and not that severe and I think as well as that we've also got the fact that there's a lot of research going on so there's research going on into um, what different medications we can use uh, that might limit this there's uh, stuff going on in terms of research into vaccinations and you know for all the sort of fear that's around this coronavirus you know just washing your hands and using alcohol gel is enough to is enough to help prevent that spread of infection so it's not all that big and scary (laughs) right well thank you so much dr Farr. again i know that the the time difference was a bit of a challenge but thank you so much for bearing with us on that and taking the time out of your really busy schedule so where can moms find you on social media and online if they want to find out more about everything that you do yeah so uh mostly i'd say always in terms of this outbreak look at your local health stuff and look at the who sites um and cdc obviously in america for me personally i'm at dr esmeralda um is my tag on instagram and www.dresmeralda.com is my uh, blog, which I'm not great at keeping up with, but I will try. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thanks so much again. No, thanks for having me. Keep washing your hands and keep watching the news, I think, without panicking. (laughs) 